you're listening to The Lit Review, a podcast where organizers interview organizers about books. In this moment of urgency, mass political education is key. We recognize that political study is not always accessible for a variety of reasons. Our goal with The Lit Review is to be a resource that brings out key information from relevant books to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May, and thank you for listening to The Lit Review. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of The Lit Review. We are here from my living room and I'm with Monica. Hey, Monica. What's up? And today we're going to be talking about a book that I've owned now for maybe four years, five years, still haven't read, uh, and I'm really excited. We're with Jason Lydon, the founder of Black and Pink, and we're going to be talking about, is it Kwasi Balagoon? We'll talk about that after how we pronounce this. A Soldier's Story, Writings by a Revolutionary New African Anarchist. How you doing, Jason? Doing great. I'm so excited to be chatting with you all. Well, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are, what you do, and why? Sure. Uh, so again, as you said, my name's Jason. I am uh, the founder and former national director for Black and Pink, which is an open family of LGBT and HIV positive prisoners who support each other, uh, along with free world allies. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I spend most of my time in organizing around abolition of the prison industrial complex and have for past decade and a half or so. Uh, I come to this work as a person of faith that my Unitarian Universalist uh, faith community has really been a big part of shaping who I am. Uh, And so as part of my call to ministry, I've really uh, been focused on doing work uh, with people who are currently locked up and affected by the criminal legal system, uh, which certainly began as part of my own incarceration and wanting to support the folks who had looked out for me while I was locked up and then wanting to work with them. Uh, I'm a new person in Chicago. I lived in Boston and the Boston area all my life, basically, and just moved here at age 34. And it feels weird and exciting to be doing a new adventure uh, and excited to be learning about Chicago and all the organizing that's happening here. Well, Jason, we're so happy to have you in Chicago now. It's super exciting, and you're blocks away from me. Truth. And we have to get coffee soon. Indeed. You know, we just got to hang out yeah. again, because we got coffee in the in the summer. That one time. Summer. It was really awesome. I protected I you from, from bees. Yeah, we. oh my God, we were getting attacked by bees. That was terrifying. Um, so, welcome. Uh, I think before we jump into, you know, like, what is this book about? Um, so, is it Kawasi, or is it? Or uh, how do you pronounce this uh, person's name? So Kwasi? I would say for the first number of years that I had been reading this book, yeah. I always said Kawazi Balagoon. Okay. And then uh, when I was at Black and Pink and we decided to give an award in his name, uh, I was talking with Ashanti Alston, a revolutionary uh, black anarchist who was comrades with uh, Kwasi, and that he said he pronounces his name Kwasi. Okay. Uh, and then I have heard... Uh, Kazi Torre, also a former uh, political prisoner, black revolutionary, though not an anarchist and would not appreciate if I considered him an anarchist, uh, also says Kuwaiti. And so I'm not entirely sure uh, exactly. And unfortunately, given that he is uh, no longer alive, uh, can't we can't ask him. Uh, but people who I know who have known him say Kuwaiti, though 
most folks who read the book who have talked about it out loud who didn't know him say Kwasi. So, all right. I think so <laughs> that's just, what I know. Let's say Kwasi. Kwasi Balagoon. That sounds that sounds accurate. Okay. Great. So we're going to say Kwasi Balagoon. Um, and I think before we jump into this book, um, so you and I were at uh, a Lucy Parsons book talk recently with yeah. uh, Miriam Kaba. And it was really cool to see in this room and in, in this space, you know, typically we don't, anarchism doesn't come up a lot in our spaces or in the, in the spaces that I'm in um, as of recent years. And so it was kind of cool to see this little like, cadre of like of like anarchists in the room you know like old school anarchist and you know myself I came into politics as an anarchist and so when you jump into sort of giving us a background on who is Kwesi and what is this book about can you also give us like a little definition of what is anarchism to you sure absolutely so just right now I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, great so I mean for this book I think how I came to this book was I think in like 2005, 2006 around uh, because of the ways in which anarchism is so often seen as this white punk rock thing. And to be honest, that's how I came into it as a white person who was also into punk rock subcultures, especially because of my faith community being so many teenage punk rockers uh, hanging out in church basements. I was learning about anarchism through like Crime Think and Days of War, Nights of Love and these other mediocre kind of understandings of uh, anarchism that I no longer ascribe to and was really searching for, well, I know that this idea can't solely come from white folks because no ideas do. Uh, and so I was curious about how else are people talking about anarchism and I had been directed actually through the Lucy Parsons Center, uh, an anarchist info shop in Boston, to this book uh, from some organizers there. And what I was looking for was an anarchism that uh, was not so individually focused, that when we hear about anarchism, we hear about the words like chaos and everyone do does whatever they want. And I was clear through reading like Emma Goldman and P uh, Peter Kropotkin and these other kind of... Uh, white European uh, anarchists that that wasn't actually at all what many people considered to be anarchism and that I was surrounded by socialists and communists and statists who believe that the way in which we'll make change is by a powerful uh, kind of all-encompassing state that provided all resources and that never sat well with me uh, because of again being taught about anarchism through my faith community uh, the status solutions weren't ones that I was excited about, but the taking care of everybody was something I was all about. I was like, I don't think anarchism is this idea where we all do whatever we want, but rather that we're coming together and figuring things out uh, in community. And so what I see is the anarchism that's most relevant is the, that combination of anarchism and communism, a non-statist uh, mutual aids based society, which Kwesi goes into a lot in his different pieces in this book. Uh, but the way this book is written is it's a lot of just pieces, right? It's a lot of pieces of his letters. And I'm still a little bit unclear who his letters are to. Uh, that feels confusing to me at times, uh, who exactly he's writing to. Uh, and then it's also his statements from his trial and some of his poetry. And then a little bit of things that other people have written about him. Uh, and what I think is so useful about this book, and maybe I'm saying a little too much already, but 
related to kind of how I understand anarchism is the way in which you can align with so many people for so long and that there's so much that we agree on as the left. And he has a lot of defining of what makes the left in this book. Uh, but that statist leftists and anarchist leftists have so much that we share as anti-imperialist people looking to dismantle capitalism and white supremacy uh, that there's work that we can do together. And that really is what sticks out to me about his uh, writing and his letters and his statements uh, that we have more to work on together before we need to fight each other. Okay. So I want to definitely go into the book more, but so I, I remember the first person I met that I was like, Oh, this person's an anarchist was Monica. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, I'm still learning a lot and I, and I've always had, um, maybe like an affinity because people that I love and trust, um, identify as anarchists. Um, and, but I, I really don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I get defensive of it when people come at it, but I'd like, I, I can't yeah. really explain what it looks like. So, th- solidarity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think uh, what you just said makes sense to me, but I want to, for our listeners who maybe are in my boat as well, um, I think part of what's hard for me is when is this idea of like, I don't know if I can articulate what the state is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you say it, you know, it's, it's building a world that doesn't have a state to, to meet people's needs. What does that mean? There's no like, government like what what do you mean by the absence of state and you also use this word mutual aid um can you say more what that is but like what like i we were talking earlier like i think batman right and the joker and him sort of causing chaos and that he has several speeches about it but it's like at least it's fair like that sort of taps people are afraid that it will mean that there'll be rampant crime and theft and all this stuff um but that people are really annoyed at the government being corrupt and so there's some sympathy in the movie for it. But anyways, yeah. So can you say more um, about what the state is and is not? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think the state uh, or I don't think getting rid of the state means we get rid of relationships and ways in which people support each other. My understanding of kind of this anarchist communist idea of how people will relate to each other uh is one going to be difficult for us to do all together because we're so used to status thinking. Uh, but I think what's been offered through different communities is uh, federated, uh, localized work. Uh, and so some folks in anarchist communism have relied on the syndicalist ideas, which are this idea that workers together through uh, the places of work that they are, that they will be making decisions about their labor uh, and that that is going to be the ways in which uh, resources are allocated based on workers. Uh, but then I would say for myself as somebody trying to have a disability justice analysis and uh, you know thinking beyond just our ways that are kind of manufacturing in the past, how people have looked at it or kind of service labor as being the defining aspect of who we are, I'd like to think that our humanity, uh, that we have a responsibility simply to come together in different localized communities that come together in what many anarchists would call free association. That is people choosing to come together into a space. Uh, And Kowesi writes about it specifically around race-based work that uh, especially around colonized people within the U S black people in particular, indigenous people uh, being able to decide and create uh, their own communities to 
decide how resources are allocated and shared. And that through, I think, what people today would call spokes councils type models, that people would be coming together and agreeing on ways that they would share and exchange resources, uh, that people's basic needs of housing and food, uh, and he doesn't say entertainment, but I would say entertainment, that like the, the luxuries too, like I, I'm not fighting for a world where we are not getting some joy too of things that we want, uh, but that these things are being made available uh, to folks in a communal way. And so first, of course, it's an expropriation of resources. The first thing that needs to happen for anarchism to really be possible is those with wealth and power now need to be uh, relieved of it. Um, and for Kwesi, that's through violence. Uh, he's very clear that uh, violence is an essential part of <clears throat> excuse me, of revolutionary change and that uh, the powerful will not give up uh, what they have without a fight and so for him that includes using violence to take it and restore it back into communities and I think what we've learned all of us certainly committed to justice now and doing abolitionist organizing is we've learned a lot that what community is is often hard and I think that Kwesi and many anarchists have fetishized this idea of community uh, and that when the community comes together and provides uh, resources for each other, everything's going to be great. And it's like, well, actually, community's fucked up and we do terrible things to each other and we are harmful. Uh, but I think what anarchist communism offers us is an opportunity to figure out what are our shared values? How are we coming together with those? And how are we figuring out ways to distribute resources differently? Uh, and then imagining how we can try that. And what I feel like he offers is lots of descriptions of ways that we can try it and it's really just about you know uh always creating new institutions uh, that's a big piece of what he's advocating that we need to try creating things now uh, and i think that's what abolition's about too that abolitionism and anarchism in my mind go hand in hand yep. despite the fact that our amazing leaders have mostly been marxists and statists uh i love and affirm and appreciate the amazing work that they've done and for me my understanding of anarchism uh, requires abolition and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was actually just going to say that when I think about our spaces, like I said earlier, and how we really don't talk about anarchism, I see abolition as sort of the, the praxis of anarchism, yeah. right? Like that is us practicing, uh, uh, breaking things down, destroying things, and then coming up with reimagining what that world could look like and, and rebuilding things and creating new things. So mm -hmm. totally with you on that piece. Um, so let's get into a little bit about Kwesi. Uh, I just opened the book and saw uh, that he was born in 1946 and, and passed away in 86, which means he was 40 years old. So yeah. why was his life so short? And, and you know, what, what was going on um, in his life, like in the later years too? Yeah, so he was incarcerated when he died. He died of age-related illnesses. Um, and it is likely that he contracted the virus while he was incarcerated. Um, and it was at a time, certainly, when people were not providing support and care and resources to people living with HIV. And to be honest, he died well before there was anything, any tr real treatment. Uh, and his death actually activated people like David Gilbert, um, Laura Whitehorn and other political prisoners and prisoners of war to start uh, aid support groups inside prisons, mostly in New York. 
that his death really galvanized the political prisoner movement around uh, HIV and AIDS and uh, prisoner justice work. And so certainly, yeah, his death, uh, his life was taken because of the state, uh, first and foremost, because he was incarcerated uh, and stolen out of his community, that he was a resistance fighter. Um, He had been part of many different iterations uh, of underground movement from kind of underground aspects of the Black Panther Party to joining the Black Liberation Army. And then there's debate and dispute over uh, what other groups he was or was not part of in terms of underground revolutionary groups. But he was uh, part of bank expropriations, um, potentially part of some retaliation uh, against police for police violence that led to police deaths uh, but again some of that is a little unclear on what exactly he was or wasn't involved in um, and so when he was eventually tried and convicted uh, around the Brinks uh, trial he actually likely was not involved in the Brinks robbery at all <laughs> uh, and I think one of the things that's interesting that I've learned and appreciated from hearing from former political prisoners and current political prisoners is that when the time came that somebody was getting charged, you eventually just started saying, sure, I did that as a way of not letting other people continue to be uh, searched for for it. So uh, I think that was, you know, he was sacrificed by the state. Uh, and then also took on things for the movement. Uh, but his innocence was never something he ever was interested in really expounding upon, that he was fighting for liberation. And then uh, while incarcerated, um, yeah, he died on the inside. And so I'm looking at the the table of contents, and I see it, it's broken up into basically three parts from what I see, where it's people writing about him and his influence, um, and then direct letters, letters directly from him and writings mm-hmm. directly from him and seems like maybe some testimony and then his poetry, um, which I had never seen before. That's really yeah. exciting. So, um, can you tell us more about what are the main ideas that you think he's talking through in his writings? I think the biggest ideas are trying to explain to people what the left could be, uh, that he is most of his writing and potentially all of it. Cause even his statements, I think from court, excuse me, were written while he was in prison, right? So I think it's uh, important to understand all the, his writing as prison literature, right? And prison uh, commentary on the world. Uh, and that he now, as somebody who's no longer underground, uh, is able to kind of express all sorts of different uh, ideologies for people to align with. And so I think he is specifically offering uh, a critique of Marxist-Leninist black revolutionary organizing uh, by offering anarchist visions as something that people should be attaining. That he certainly has a critique of what he calls kind of petty bourgeois uh, leftism and is, without naming names, is critiquing, I think, specific people within Black liberation struggles uh, of saying that some people are taking money and are using money and are uh, seeking a state power to build their own power. And so I'm thinking he's critiquing the Black Panther Party specifically around kind of the Maoist ideologies. Uh, But again, this is much later. So the Black Panther Party is not really uh, functioning when he's writing. Um, But I think that that's something he's kind of commenting on uh, when he's saying those things that he 
is trying to push the movement away from a status solution to liberation while at the same time saying that anarchism, I mean, he has an essay that says anarchism can't do it alone or can't win alone or something like that. Um, And uh, it's about the importance of aligning uh, anarchist revolutionaries, status revolutionaries uh, together to fight against uh, imperialism. And that's, one of the key thing that he keeps re- referencing back to is uh, being an anti-imperialist revolutionary. That that is uh, what is key into his language of how he's expressing liberation, and that that anti-imperialism in- includes colonized people within the United States, indigenous people, Latino people, black people, uh, and he's uh, always describing the ways in which doing anti-imperialist solidarity globally also requires anti-imperialist uh, work within the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, you know, just as an aside, something that is in there that was really meaningful for me is he has this one little paragraph where he's talking specifically to queer people, uh, to gay people and to feminists. Um, and it's, to my understanding, the only example of a kind of political prisoner revolutionaries from that period really talking specifically to queer folks. Um and specifically, especially coming from Black Liberation uh, folks who are currently inside, where he's talking specifically about how gay people at that time were getting police liaisons. Uh, and he says, you know, that if you are buying into the state uh, as an oppressed person, that you are no longer on the left, that you are inherently counter-revolutionary, um, and that you are perpetuating violence against black communities, that you're perpetuating violence against other marginalized people. He says the same, says the same thing to feminists uh, in it. And there's a lot of question of whether or not Kwesi was queer. Um, it is known that he had a trans woman partner, but that does not necessarily make him queer. Uh, but then uh, there are some current and former political prisoners who describe him talking about romantic relationships he had with men as well. And so the degree of his queerness and his identity um, is interesting to me as a gay man looking always for revolutionary gay men. Um, But also I'm not trying to ascribe and put him into a box that he didn't necessarily identify with. Uh, That said, regardless, given that he died of age-related illnesses, he gets, I would say, classified as queer, um, because especially in the eighties, that being such a queer disease though it is still today. Um, and I, what was so important for me about that piece that he's saying is that he's opening the doors to, uh, intersectional organizing in a way that I think a lot of the new left and the underground revolutionaries of that time weren't really talking about intersectionality in that same way of uh, the ways in which people of all marginalized identities could and should be fighting together. Uh, And I think that he was really offering some of that and taking, I would say, risks uh, writing about queer stuff in 1980s uh, from prison. Wow. Wow. Okay. I have so many questions. So you said he was writing in the 1980s um, around about queer people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, where was um, the prison located, or where or what was what That's was it in question. the states or was it? it was in, yeah, uh, it, it was in, in New York, I believe. Oh, okay, okay. Was he in the same prison as as David Gilbert? I think so. Okay, okay, cool. Um, that I, I yeah. well, I mean, you are quoting me on that, as in I think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't remember exactly. I would have to right, double right. check. They. 
I assumed they were they were co-defendants, um, and so I would presume so. Yeah. I had no idea that you know because I I you know love david gilbert and i just i he is just the sweetest yes most caring like most intelligent human being and like i like i love reading stuff by him and uh i saw that there's like an introduction uh in this book by david gilbert but i had no idea that uh was part of the brinks armed Mm -hmm. robbery trial right okay yeah wow that's what he was convicted under uh okay makes sense now see this is what happens when you don't read the book Uh, so so i wanted to break a few key terms down for our listeners um could you give us your definition of like just a very a very simple definition of imperialism (laughs) i feel like that's a word that is often sort of talked about said a lot but not a lot of people really understand what that means um so what is your definition of that and I think in the context of Kwesi, yeah. uh, my understanding of like kind of what he is saying imperialism is, or my understanding of imperialism because of him, uh, is the ways in which, and I'll, I'll talk specifically about U.S. imperialism. He does talk about other imperialisms, which I can mention in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but so U.S. imperialism being essentially a tool of white supremacist, capitalist, uh, state militaristic violence uh, that is used to expand the economic and political powers of white supremacist U.S. governing uh, and economic forces around the world and within the U.S. Mm. Uh, So at that time, um, there was a lot of ways of thinking about uh, people of color specifically in the U.S. as colonized people. Sometimes that's used still today, other times not. But that was a bit within the left. That was really important language uh, to talk about black folks, uh, Latino folks and indigenous folks, uh, API folks as colonized people within the U.S. Uh, I think now with as we talk more about settler colonialism, we mostly when we talk about colonized people in the U.S., we're talking about uh, indigenous folks. So, of course, we're talking about the ways in which uh, black folks were extracted from Africa and aspects around that that are tied to imperialism. But it seems to me that in 2017, we less so talk about the colonized uh, identity of people in this in that in the same way that they were doing then. Um, but that said, I don't think our, the understanding of imperialism that we could or I would say should be utilizing doesn't still apply. Uh, that it is still that economic... Uh, militaristic, capitalistic, white supremacist state violence that is being used intentionally to control and regulate black and brown bodies um, and both within the United States and globally. Uh, And at times I would think that our lack of connecting globally uh, around talking about dismantling systems of white supremacy uh, is something that we are, uh, is a a minus right now or a, a, a bummer in these are not any of the best words I'm looking for. <laughs> Minus and bummer. Uh, I'm so articulate today uh, that are uh, maybe insufficient for the movement. And not to tell, not for myself as a white person telling black and brown folks how to organize, but also for white, like collectively, all of us as the left, um, making more connections around the global aspect of freedom fighting. I think it's something we need to con- constantly be doing better. Mm-hmm. Which I do think, with all of my critiques of the new left and uh, of the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, 
there was never a divorce from the international aspect of freedom fighting, whether it was solidarity with the people of Vietnam, uh, fighting back against apartheid in South Africa, that that was always part of understanding the way of fighting for freedom within the U.S., uh, which I think that sometimes we miss out on today. And if we do align with it, it comes mostly around Palestine, which is essential and important, and we absolutely should be talking about that. But I do think the left at times uh, misses more of the conversation, whether we're talking about Yemen um, or the ways in which U.S. imperialism is affecting many parts of Africa uh, right. now. Yeah. Or even even a lot of our organizations will say like, yes, free Palestine. But like, what are we actually doing and how are we how are we bringing that into our daily everyday organizing? Right. Um, This is my last question before I pass it back to you. Sorry. Uh, You've brought up several times already like violence in many different ways. Right. You've brought up state sanctioned violence. You've brought up how Kweisi believes in violence as a as a a tactic of liberation. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, and I think. In my experience, you know, as an anarchist um, coming into uh, organizing many of our conversations, and I'm sure you can identify with this, many of our conversations are around um, what is violent and what is not, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to property destruction, mm-hmm. um, blowing up government buildings and, and um, versus, you know, actually harming people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm curious uh, if you could go a little bit more into Kwesi's definition of violence um, and how, uh, yeah, Kwesi's definition of violence and also, like, how do you see, what, in your opinion, do they do they align? Do, do, do you align with Kwesi's definition of violence? Um, and then what do you think about property destruction? Sure. Uh, so Kwesi doesn't give kind of a traditional explicit, this is how I understand and define violence, which would be very helpful. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's no glossary. It'd be nice to have a glossary. I always want a glossary <laughs> for every book. Uh, fiction or nonfiction, please. Um, but so what I what I understand him talking about kind of uh, statist violence uh, or in capitalist violence is exploitation. Like I think those kind of violence and exploitation kind of go hand in hand in the definition um, that it's about uh, harming and destroying people uh, to extract resources from them uh, to control and regulate bodies. Um, and to maintain power and control. And then I think his understanding of revolutionary violence, uh, I don't, he doesn't distinguish from what I've read uh, between kind of harming individuals and attacking property. I don't see that as something that he's differentiating between exactly. Uh, he talks a lot about militias, the need to start and form and create militias uh, that are part of the federated communities. Like when he's t- talking about a kind of post-revolutionary society, he does believe that militias will still be necessary in order to prevent counter-revolutionaries from uh, gaining control or to keep uh, folks who are part of other communities who do not align with values from trying to usurp and control uh, maybe anarchist collective spaces. Uh, And so he talks about defensive violence in that type of a way. And then in terms of getting there, uh, certainly he talks about bank expropriations, which many people consider to be violent, uh, traditionally called robberies. Um, And you know, people at times get hurt or killed during those. That's never the goal because it's also uh, the George Jackson Brigade kind of wrote quite a bit about how in an expropriation, it is always 
uh, counter to the goal for somebody to get hurt uh, because it puts more risk on the people expropriating from the bank and they don't want to hurt anybody uh, because they want the money. That actually is the community's money, right? It's called expropriation because it's about returning the money uh, from the capitalists back into the movement. And Kwesi's writing in this book specifically about efforts of expropriating money to pay bail for people who are currently, like revolutionaries currently incarcerated, uh, and his upset at the left for reducing the use of expropriations uh, after the Brinks robbery because he felt as though uh, they kind of let him down and other people down. It wouldn't have been to bail him out, I don't believe, but that they let down this strategy that despite the um, consequences that happened to him and David Gilbert and others uh, that he believed was still an appropriate strategy to use bank expropriations. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And he doesn't talk about all of the other revolutionary violence he took part in, but at the time we can assume that he was taking part in uh, any of the bombings that happened of both government buildings, but also capitalist uh, corporate buildings that were profiting off of apartheid in South Africa, which was a big uh, tactic that folks were using. He highlights and celebrates the United Freedom Front, uh, which was a multiracial working class revolutionary underground group that mostly blew up buildings that were uh, benefiting from uh, apartheid in South Africa. And so he's certainly celebrating that as a tactic. Uh, and then the Black Liberation Army, which he was aligned with, possibly a member of, is still a little unclear, uh, certainly killed police officers um, as well as drug dealers uh, in New Jersey in particular uh, as a tactic that they believed would help to protect and keep the community safe. Um, so I assume that he probably aligned with and supported those tactics as well. For myself, in terms of property destruction, uh, I don't know if how helpful I think it is to define it as violence or not violence. Um, the definition, the defining of things as violent or not, I think gets into quickly into an ideo ideological argument that I think is vastly uh, unhelpful um, because it's the same thing we do in the abolitionist movement where we say, do not talk about violent versus nonviolent prisoners because it's never helpful. That doesn't get us closer to liberation. So I'm much more interested in talking about tactics uh, and what tactics are useful in any given moment. Uh, I absolutely think that property destruction is an effective tactic uh, for certain things at certain times. Uh, I think I won't make comments on the other types of violence on whether or not I think those are helpful tactics at other times. But... Um, yeah, I think that uh, no, I do not think that ruling out tactics is helpful for an ideological liberation uh, movement. That uh, our responsibility is to win revolution uh, and to secure liberation for all people, and that when it comes to each individual tactic, we need to see that within a larger strategy and decide uh, collectively in our smaller groups in communities, which tactics are going to get us closer to our goals. Can you say more about how race played into his, uh, into his writings? And I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm skimming through this, I'm blown away. Like you see, yeah, he's, he's talking about everything. Like I see Palestine is talked yep. about and he, like, he's making all of these incredible connections, but you mentioned earlier, I mean, he, it seemed like he believed in black struggle. Yes. Um, and so how do, how do his ideas, 
ideals or his his um, ideology around anarchism uh, connects and reconcile with his racial analysis and wh- his understanding of white supremacy. Yeah, I don't think there's they have any contradiction to each other at all. I think that uh, his understanding of kind of a black nationalism is a uh, celebratory black nationalism. Ashanti Alston has written after this book uh, an article called Beyond Nationalism But Not Without It. And I think it's actually very similar to what Kuwezi is talking about, which is the importance and essential aspect of Black community having, and New African community specifically is the language he uses, um, having space and land. He talks a lot about land and the importance of uh, people black people, new African people having the rights to make decisions about uh, their own lives, their own bodies, their own communities, their own economies. Uh, And I don't see that divorced from his understanding of anarchism in the sense that uh, there's no no reason that a collective-based space uh, or an autonomous space of anarchist folks can't be identity-based. Right and can't specifically be about a colonized people, uh, as he understands new African folks in the United States to be a colonized people creating a space that can still be in a federated relationship with uh, white folks, indigenous people, Latino folks, API folks, uh, but that there's still space specifically for black new African folks uh, to secure their own liberation. that is not in any way a uh, separation from collective liberation. Um, And that he specifies multiple times about the importance of people having space to celebrate their identity and culture. Um, And I think that that kind of lifts up the potentials of anarchism, where it's not about saying we are all coming, we all just come together and everything's great, that actually space... Uh, where people are separate uh, and federated and sol- and federated in the sense of like solidarity, mutual aid in the ways of building relationships that are mutually beneficial and never exploitative, uh, that that can be helpful. Um, and then he, in the same kind of letter where he's talking about how some of these federated colonized uh, and therefore kind of uh, anti-colonial then uh, post-revolutionary societies will exist so he's talking about how exchange will happen uh, and he's anti-money and thinks that money would be gotten rid of but uh, says in passing that in the transition to getting there that a substitute for money would be reefer and that was amazing <laughs> I, I see Monica's flipping through a book, so I'm going to ask a follow-up question that's a little bit more like, wait, another question about how anarchism works um, in the weed stuff. So I guess where my brain is going right now is I'm trying to imagine the scale. Like, I, there's there's uh, some quote by someone dope about like how organizing has to not just transform, you know, the political landscape, but also, like, our, our, our values and our relationships to ourselves and each other, right? And... Um, and I'm, I'm imagining a scenario where you have sort of like these federations and let's just take the almost like the raining rocks analogy that you hear in like organizing 101 workshops. But like what if one group of people is upriver and they really love making this weird food that makes things I don't know, like pollutes the river or it makes it creates a bad smell that go that moves downwind. And it, how do federations interact with each other when there's disagreement about like 
or Easter Island, right, where you have this math, these these statues that are being built, and each part of the island, for folks that don't know, has different necessary resources, and it leads to um, like a, their own almost extinction because of trying to build these statues and, and tearing down everything. Anyway, so all of that is to say, um, how how does that work? And how because it seems like you would it would require a massive transformation of values, um, which all organizing like does. It's just this. Yeah, how do you think that would work um, to get people to recognize fairness? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the question that you're asking reminds me exactly of like the same questions we ask around abolition of, well, what are we going to do with the people who cause the most amount of harm? And I think one of the answers, of course, is that we need to make sure everyone's getting the things that they need and we're providing basic resources. And then another part of the answer is we don't really know until we start trying. Um, and that's one of the things that Kwesi talks about is that we need to start creating things now. And so in my head, one of the ways we address that, uh, is kind of through actions we've seen where, uh, during the anti-globalization movement, uh, in the late nineties and early two thousands, when people would work in affinity groups, come together into a space, uh, and disagree, and create spokes councils where somebody from each group would come in uh, and discuss the different needs of their group, and then they would try to come to consensus and figure it out. And so to me, that includes our transformative justice practices where we are listening uh, truly and authentically to each other and creating our shared values. Uh, and then what I would say, what Kwesi, I think, would say is that if one other uh, group's efforts are infringing on your liberty of your group and it's affecting you, if they're not willing to compromise, then you will fight back. Um, and that that's okay. I think that he would say, um, you know, if, if violence is needed to stop them from, so for instance, creating something that is going to harm your community because they're using resources that are extra somehow extracting or in, therefore is exploitative to yours, that you will fight back. Um, and stop that, that hopefully you'd be able to work it out because if you're in a federated relationship, you're trying to prevent those types of things. Uh, but I think the ways in which that that is not government, because quickly it starts sounding like government, uh, is that these, my understanding of kind of how these models of federated relationships will happen is that the community itself, it's more participatory democracy, not representative democracy, right? That uh, anarchism does not take away the idea of leadership, Right. Uh, I think it does for some people, uh, but not to me. And I don't think to Kwesi either uh, that people get elevated into leadership and that rotates uh, and that people continuously are figuring out ways of sharing power to make those decisions together. I was going to say, as you were talking, it reminds me of like a few moments growing up in my small rural town where like someone's wanted to build uh, a thing, an addition on their house and it was going, and the neighbors didn't like it. Right. And like, and uh -huh. how those things got resolved or didn't, um, adding a, a, a red light <laughs> to the center of totally. town. Right? And it, and it, I mean, the whole town would turn out right. Yep. And votes. And, and I think, you know, there's, I remember there was one vote that it was off by, I think, two people, which to me is like shows that that's not consensus. I think there's right. there's but there, there, there's something about the ideals of democracy that we don't actually have access to mm -hmm. with the way that we live that are, are that I'm hearing, though, in what you're saying, where it is. It's much more about participation and actually and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we're going to reach a point where everyone is happy all right. the time and nobody does anything that upsets right. anyone else and that you're perfectly content with everything. But that there's there's a. A, a, a value for for 
building consensus, right? Mm-hmm. And, and articulating your frustrations um, and having a platform to, to, to say those things and to be listened to. Um, and I appreciate what Kwesi's doing where he's, he's saying like, and it might mean that you have to fight back, right? Yeah. Um, and there's not this ideal of like, oh, and then, you know, if you just say it, people will listen and respect it. Um, yeah, and it, feel, it, 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 it feels rooted in praxis where it's just like we just have to start um, and through that process. So thank you. Um, I feel like there was something else I was going to say, but I guess I'm just responding. One of the most defining moments of my experience in organizing and activist spaces in the last 10 years has been uh, the or organizing and, and, and activating against the Republican National Convention mm-hmm. in 2008. Um, and something that I still utilize from that was these, uh, and, I, and I thought of this because you mentioned like affinity groups and you mentioned, um, you know, and so I started thinking about something that I use all the time still, and that's the St. Paul principles that came out of that. And mm-hmm. it, it was these four principles that were that hundred uh, about a hundred organizations all committed to right mm-hmm. and it was like one was um uh solidarity based on a respect of diversity of tactics mm-hmm. right so like we we even if we don't agree with the way you're gonna uh go against the R- the republican national convention we're not gonna we're not gonna talk shit about it we're not gonna yeah. we're not gonna we're gonna be in solidarity with it because we respect that yep. that was an agreed upon principle another one was a separation of time and space and mm-hmm. so that was like any action that you're gonna do whether it's like some smashy smashy stuff or like a march of like undocumented folks like we're gonna make sure that those are separated and right. those are not gonna fuck with each other right um another one was internal debate stays inside mm-hmm. so we're not gonna talk shit about each other on the internet we're not gonna talk to any mainstream news outlets about you know each other everything that does happen because it's inevitable things are gonna happen and you're gonna you're gonna someone's gonna do something really dumb and so that debate stayed internal and the last one was obvious it was um uh Opposition to state repression and not assisting or cooperating with law enforcement mm-hmm. um, be, when any dissent actually does happen, which then happened. Uh, and I just think that the, those principles were just so beautiful and something that I just use every day still in my organizing that I, I think about when it comes to direct actions. And so long story short, my question is um, what are some current day tactics or efforts that you see or have seen in, in recent years um, that align with uh, Kwesi? vision for liberation? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think in Chicago, an example is obviously the No Cop Academy effort, which is, you know, clearly so decentralized in a lot of ways of encouraging folks to uh, take the actions that they want and need to take to raise awareness, to mobilize people, to get the information out there and to win. Uh, And regardless of... Uh, individual moments of loss in the fight that the struggle is long uh, and that there's a desire to keep showing what could be done differently instead of spending $95 million on a new cop academy. So I think that's a, like the, the model of organizing, I think very much so aligns with aspects of what uh, he's saying. I think uh, uh, certainly the fights against pipelines uh, can fit into that at times. I think sometimes Less so, and sometimes more so, depending on kind of like when we see uh, kind of the fight, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline fight specifically with an encampment and indigenous-led fighting, that that uh, welcomed a diversity of tactics, including people locking down to equipment and fighting back uh, and doing what they felt they needed to, 
Um, though I think it kind of shows at times a difference uh, from what you're talking about specifically in those values of people not talking shit about each other. That did start happening, right? Obviously at the uh, on, on a media level. And so I think part of that needs to keep happening uh, of people having conversations around affirming each other's diversity of tactics, because I think that's something that Kowesi does affirm is a diversity of tactics. Uh, while I think he definitely lifts up violence as a more essential tactic that is being walked away from more and more all the time. Um, I think watching the abolitionist movement continue to grow and people trying transformative justice practices uh, in multiple different communities is an effort that aligns with this, that talking about abolition and, again, trying to create uh, the new structures is a big part of what he's telling people to do. Uh, and then kind of the Black Lives Matters movement in general in sense of, like, talking about identity specific and identity based and colonized people or however people are identifying themselves as uh, the leadership and the body that makes decisions about liberation struggle uh, is always central to what he's talking about. So one thing that you've, you've kind of hinted at this or, or started to talk through this a little bit, um, you've mentioned land and I'm wondering if you can talk more about what this book and, and what your ideas are around the relationship between our liberation struggles and access to land. And I think as much as possible too, within that, when you were talking about the difference between right, like indigenous peoples and black people, that's where it gets really messy. Yes. Um, because like, we're not like black folks, like it, there's there's pushes to make claims to land, but it feel like what does that mean? Because we're not indigenous to this land, but we're also like where we can't claim land in Africa, right? So, um, how central is is like what is the relationship between land and these and and an anarchist liberation struggle? So, I think looking at kind of Kwesi's relationships to uh, the New African Liberation Movement in particular, that also included. Uh, at one point, I struggled to make, um, I think it was Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Georgia, and part of northern Florida. I forget exactly where, but the New African Republic, uh, which was a very specific struggle. Um, that was a statist kind of struggle, but one that uh, I think by calling himself a New African anarchist, that he's aligning specifically kind of with the New African Republic movement, uh, which was a land a land reclaiming, uh, though I think for black folks specifically, uh, or new African folks specifically, though certainly I think has tension around the question of, uh, indigenous people's, uh, entitlement to that same land. Uh, and so I don't know, to be honest, the grappling that was happening in the new African Republic movement around solidarity with like the American Indian movement, for instance, that was talking also about, uh, land return, right? Uh, though my understand the understanding I do have around the American Indian movement in terms of land return was always specific areas that never did actually include that same area. Uh, so maybe that was part of what helped with the tension that the new African Republic was able to, and to talk about an area that was particularly affected by chattel slavery, right? Uh, as a saying, we worked this land, our ancestors worked this land, this is our land. Uh, so I think there's a piece around that um, that gets complicated. And as a 
you know, as a white person looking at this, uh, my role isn't to tell people of color how to deal with internal struggle around access to land. That said, within the anarchist liberation struggle, there is uh, a very clear sense that borders are need to be destroyed in the sense that like, yes, people have an entitlement to the land of their people and uh, there needs to be access to free movement as well uh, through an exchange of resources and support and community that is again, based in mutual aid. And so I think that the ways that we talk about land and access uh, there's one, the question of what people's uh, cultural community heritage ties are to uh, there's another question around uh, access to resources that um, this is kind of just my own piece, not anything from Kowazi Balagoon, but thinking about some land is has more opportunities for things that can give life and uh, bring about survival of a community and other spaces don't. And so when we think about access to land and who's going to be on which land and what land is good for whom, uh, ensuring that we are never like, not returning land and forcing people onto land that's returned or thinking about that in a way that ends up uh, putting people in the least resourced land, which is certainly what reservations have done in the United States in ways. Um, and so I think in my understanding of anarchism, a return of land is essential, of course, to people. Like I think about Palestine and our uh, fight right now needs to be returned to Palestinians and the end of like a Zionist imperialist control while at the same time there's a conversation that needs to be had about who has free movement and access and space to survive. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's all really hard uh, and that land struggles and access to survival is difficult to figure out how to manage. And I, I would say that Kwesi and kind of the movement at the time was uh, less interested in indigeneity to the land and more about uh, in terms of like who's entitled to very specific land in terms of heritage and more about ensuring equitable access to land. Uh, and I think that's an, an interesting question to me um, is the difference between those things. Yeah. Wow, so we've packed so much into this little episode. Um, thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. My and pleasure. Yeah, this has been incredible. And it's been refreshing, too, to just like actually have a conversation about anarchism. Um, and I had no idea that that's how you first thought about me. That's so funny. Wow. Uh, are there any are there any other thoughts that you have on this book that you didn't get to share yet? Uh, I think just we were talking about how I appreciate how he kind of throws shade at Marxist Leninists and yet still works with them and loves yeah. them and has solidarity and how we have a hard time doing that in the left today mm -hmm. where we don't do a very good job of criticizing each other with love uh, and still then working together mm -hmm. and being like, oh, I don't agree with this way that you do that your vision long term, but I agree with our movement right now right? Uh, and the things we're working on right now. And yeah, I feel like it'd be nice if we could do that a little bit more and a little bit more with love with each other. Yeah, it's like tender criticism. It's like it's okay to disagree. And it's also okay to disagree and not work together. Totally. And like it's okay, you know, like there's just so many different – I think that we're so like – it's like either like – it's so like either or. It's mm -hmm. never like a, a, a complexity of organizing. It's always like 
you're either with me or fuck you, you know. Anyway, so again, the book that we were talking about today is um, Kwesi Balagoon's A Soldier Story. It's writings by a revolutionary new African anarchist. There's an incredible introduction by David Gilbert, and this book is full of Kwesi's uh, poetry, um, statements from the trial with the Brinks armed robbery, uh, and just so much more brilliant, brilliant um, stuff packed into here. So definitely check out this book. It's really, it looks like it's a tiny book, so it's a really uh, quick read. Uh, And Jason, if you could just close us out with uh, maybe one of your favorite passages. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So I referenced this earlier, and I will kind of read it for us. When a gay group protests lack of police protection by making an alliance with police to form a gay task force, they ain't making a stand against the system. They're joining it, putting more power in the hands of those who attack them for being what they are in the first place. Those women's organizations with members with underpaid black Puerto Rican and Mexican maids who decided to vote differently when the Equal Rights Amendment was defeated can't be called left, just as blacks mobilizing to field a presidential candidate aren't left. Left is the land and means of production in the hands of the masses, and right is land and the means of production in the hands of a few pigs. to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading! Keep reading.